it's a New York is a glorious mess. It's a glorious, noisy mess. And that ain't going to change. Because if it did, it wouldn't be New York anymore. So, you know, God bless the mayor. God bless all the New Yorkers. Uh, God bless the noisy mess. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. A quick note, stay up to date on all the latest episodes of The Grand Tourist by signing up with your email at thegrandtourist.net. As the world recovers from the pandemic, all eyes are on one city in particular, New York. As a cultural and financial capital of the world, this city that I call home is facing many obstacles on the road back to normalcy. Will we return to the office? Will museums and cultural institutions recover? Can artists, chefs, and designers afford life in the big city? Will they last? Will they thrive? What happens next? On this special episode of The Grand Tourist, I wanted to celebrate the city by speaking with three journalists who know it so well. And they're all from one of the most important, insightful, and wickedly clever media outlets in town, the award-winning New York Magazine. I'm joined today by three of their cultural critics, all of them Manhattan veterans. Wendy Goodman in design, Jerry Saltz in art, and Adam Platt in food. New York Magazine, which has a long and storied history in journalism going back to the 1960s, is a rare gem. The print edition is still published bi-weekly, and it has a robust online offering that puts the title's great writing and keen observations at the heart of its business. I assembled this trio of legendary observers, who happen to be friends as well as colleagues, to find out what they think the future has in store for the city, what they absolutely love to complain about, and their fondest memories of plying their classically jaded trade in the Big Apple. Tell me a little bit about how you guys first started covering what you covered. Uh, briefly, obviously, because we have all three of you here. Jerry, why don't you get started? I came to New York Magazine in 2007 after leaving The Village Voice. And when I announced to the art world that I was leaving The Voice, which was considered one of the prime art critic positions, and said that I was going to New York Magazine, The Art World, which says it wants you to be free, but hates when you behave that way, looked at me and said, you're crazy. Why would you want to write for them? And I said, I want to write for the reader. I want to write for a very large audience. So that's how I came to New York Magazine after being a truck driver until I was in my 40s. And, and, what, and where, what year was that when you made the leap to, to New York? I had been at The Voice from 1998 to 2007 and then have been at New York Magazine ever since 2007 and hope that they have to pry this job out of my hands. And Adam, how long have you been uh, working with New York? Uh, I arrived in New York in the summer of 2000. I'm the restaurant critic still, by some miracle. I had not had any previous, I'd written about food a lot because I was a, had been a, a, a contract travel writer. I was a contributing editor to, to Connie Nast Traveler. And I'd written a bunch of personal columns, uh, one of them for the New York Observer, uh, which is a long closed publication. I'd written a diary column for them and I'd, had a lot of food in it. So so anyway, so they took a flyer on this giant 
guy who liked to eat. Uh, anyway, so 2000, and I've been there uh, ever since. And how many pieces do you think you've written for them at this point? Oh, God, lots. I mean, when I started, I was doing, I'd, I'd do like three a month, and now it's over two or three a month. Yeah, a lot. Too many. Uh, too, too many meals. My, my doctors are like, stop. And I have doctors now. It's like a plural situation. It's like, stop. You have to stop. And Wendy, Wendy, of all of all the uh, of all of the places, how many how many homes do you think you've you've visited in a rough a rough estimate you visited for uh, for New York Magazine? Uh, it, it it would be impossible to say. I would say in the hundreds, I maybe a thousand. No, I mean, but really, really hundreds. And on and off, you've been with New York Magazine for quite a while now, right? I believe it or not, started at New York Magazine. Uh, replacing Anna Winter as the fashion editor in 1985. Okay, 1985. Okay, I actually did not know that. Yes, uh, I was was started my career in fashion and I was doing freelance stories for New York Magazine. Anna asked me to freelance a couple of stories. And then when she left to go to, I guess it was British Vogue, Ed Kuzner asked me to be the fashion editor. And I said, no. But then I realized I was just being so sc- I was so scared I should take the challenge and take the job, which I did. And in this current stint at New York, how long has that been? The current stint, I was asked. Oh my gosh, I've been. This is my third time at back at New York Magazine, so I have been the design editor since two thousand seven. And I guess for everybody here, like if you had to describe to someone who just flew in from God knows where, and they said like I don't. I'm not familiar with New York Magazine. Like, how would you describe, you know, the power of of New York, and, and or just kind of like the personality of it and how it fits into to the landscape here? Okay, I want to say one thing because since New York Magazine is not a shelter magazine, my challenge all these years, especially in the beginning, was when I'd ask people if we could, you know, feature their house, they'd go, but you know, we'll, we'll because it wasn't AD or El Decor. Actually, every single designer we have ever featured has told me that the power of New York Magazine, they get more work being featured in New York Magazine than any publication. That's the truth. Jerry, do you think that uh, does New York have a similar thing in the art world? Like, does it does it like bring people into the gallery, essentially? It doesn't have a similar thing in the art world. Absolutely not. When my editors first hired me and occasionally ask can we get ads out of you being an art critic? I said, no way. And it's true. Art art galleries and museums don't, well, especially gallery, don't advertise much. I would say the New York Magazine is kind of a website for everything in New York and beyond, and a hot political magazine, design, food, fashion, sex columnists, which people read in secret. I would finally add that in my world, I am one of, and I'm guessing Wendy and Adam might share this, the last of our kind. There are only, in my world, about 11 or so full-time art critics being paid to write weekly in a print publication. We are probably the end of that. Criticism will go on, of course, but it is outrageous and fabulous in many ways 
that we are employed at all, even if people think it's a waste of time. It's something of a miracle. And Adam, what about you? Like, what does the the sort of the power of the restaurant reviews still, especially in a city like New York, where? Yeah, I mean, I would say New York, New York's power is in the people who read it, and the, and the magazine, and now the website tries to key into these obsessions, right? And New Yorkers are obsessed with the things that we write about. Luckily, uh, they're obsessed with art, price of art, where I where I could get the very latest stuff. They're obsessed with uh, how to live and how other people live and how other people New Yorkers live. They love to peep into those worlds, and that's what, what, what Wendy does. And obviously, they love to eat. Right. They love to, you know, restaurants are different in New York than they are in, in other cities. They really are a form of theater. They're a form of social networking. Uh, they're a form of culture. They're a form of pride. So, you know, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm writing about. And like Jerry, uh, you know, uh, there are, when I started this job, there are probably eight or nine uh, restaurant critics in the town, sort of, for various outlets that were getting paid and they were getting, uh, the key with, with restaurant reviews is whether your company will uh, foot the bill for your, ridiculously expensive meal. Uh, there are a bunch of those. Now there are three. We're a, we're a dwindling, dwindling but still hearty, is how I would uh, describe it. Before we return to Jerry, Wendy, and Adam, a word from our sponsor, Janice AC. In the world of design, an appreciation of the outdoors is more important in our lives than ever before. Enter Janice AC. As a leader in outdoor furniture for more than 40 years, the brand combines unparalleled levels of craft and engineering to create works by the world's best designers and architects, from Andre Fu and Gabellini Shepard to Piero Lissoni. But beyond the incredible products and designs, Janus AC provides a level of service and expertise that's always best in class. As any design aficionado will tell you, some designs become icons, not just for their originality, but for their versatility and eternal elegance. The Amari Collection is one of those lines that will be found in the gardens and terraces of the finest homes for generations to come. Created by the founder of the company, Janice Feldman, the Amari Collection is instantly recognizable. Sculptural and curvaceous, each piece from two seaters and armchairs to ottomans and a minimalistic chaise lounge is a work of art that reminds me of the classic mid-century designs still fawned over today. Using the brand's legendary engineering know-how, the Amari designs are made in a lightweight aluminum frame covered in the brand's signature woven Janus coat that's available in various finishes from caramel to bamboo green. It's one collection that this grand tourist would be proud to entertain on, indoors and out. To acquire your own piece of this designer favorite collection, make an appointment at your local Janus AC showroom or visit JanusAC.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-E-T-C-I-E. And Wendy, how do you describe the reader? The reader is so smart. The reader is up to date on news, up to date on what's going on in the world. The reader is hungry for information. The reader is opinionated. The reader is, uh, you know, I always think that the reader is smarter than I am. So I'm really challenged to to really find things that will fascinate them, even if they write me and say, you know, this isn't design. This is what, what do you mean? Blah, blah, blah. But it, I want to engage them and I want to provoke them because 
um, it isn't, I'm not necessarily showing my taste. It's not about that. It's about being a design journalist, reporter, and saying, this is fascinating because this story of this person is fascinating. So it's really telling um, biographies of people through how they live. And I guess, you know, now we're in this sort of pandemic period uh, where everyone is trying to reevaluate their personal life or their political life or uh, uh, or now the, the life of the city. And so for, for the fields that you guys cover, like what does the city of New York mean to in your field, you know, amongst all of the great cities of the world? Well, pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, in many ways, Dan, the art world, at least that I'm in now, is not the one I left in March 2020. Um, There were two pandemics, really, at least in my world, I would say in most worlds. One was the withdrawal into ourselves after being in political PTSD for four or five years. And then really, everybody left their house after George Floyd. And that was a pandemic in public of incredible pain, and in my world, a change that had been coming or threatening to come for a long time arrived almost overnight. The market, the most paradoxical thing of all, all these, half of of the collectors are probably Republican, some big contributors to Trump, major started the market rather started supporting almost entirely underrepresented artists now to make the answer very short people are already wringing their hands going but all this mediocrity is getting through well of course it is but no more or less than got through for the last 200 years under white guys like me so I've had five chances and failed up. Now let's give some other people. So the short answer is this may be potentially the most exciting period in the art world of my entire life, even if a lot of this art is not exactly accessible to me. And do you think that New York is going to be the place where you can go and see that art? We are still, for better worse and very worse, the trading floor for the art world. And while art is visible everywhere all the time to everybody, it's still the trading floor. So it's an incredible place to see it all. And Wendy, like, there's so much talk about uh, how New York is changing with, uh, you know, the creation of these skyscrapers and these super luxe uh, developments you know, and obviously you and I are both in the interiors world and we see how that kind of warps reality a little bit. Um, is New York still, you know, the same city in terms of how you cover it in terms of design as it was maybe three or four years ago? That is a really good question. And really, the answer is no. Um, yes and no. I've had, obviously, the pandemic was really challenging because I couldn't go out and scout the way I normally do, which is hop on the subway, go to someone's house and, you know, root around with them. Um, 
but I would say that these skyscrapers and the, the sort of remnants of the old path of luxury are so insane to me and so obsolete. And that, that the fact that they're still being built when we need affordable housing, we need sanity, we need neighborhoods to be back, we need family businesses. I mean, maybe I'm just, this is a pipe dream, it's not never going to happen again, but we need to reset our reality here because we're not going back to anything. The pandemic has changed life forever. And I think that the way people live, I mean, people are always going to need to have the sanctuary of their homes if they're lucky enough to have a home. But I think we're in a very, very interesting, volatile and almost insane moment. And Adam, what is the what does New York mean to the restaurant tour today? Does it still like, hey, if you if you haven't made it here, you can't make it anywhere, kind of thing? Is it still, is it still have that magical quality? Well, I think I agree with Jerry. Um, you know, New York ceased to be the dining center of the world uh, a while ago. Um, you know, uh, because for all sorts of all sorts of reasons, the digital revolution, the prices, but it remains uh, the bazaar where ideas and trends and fashions are, uh, you know, if New, if New York likes it, chances are it'll go go out to the rest of the world that this is the style, this is the fashion. And in, in terms of, of, of um, uh, uh, the COVID crisis, I mean, obviously it's like, uh, you know, it's, 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 I remember having, having drinks with the, one of my colleagues and sitting around looking at all the, 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 the closed storefronts and the closed restaurants and, you know, the, our, our favorite Chinese carryout place, they disappeared within 10 minutes. And I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, this is the end of the world. And he goes, as a journalist, he says, you don't understand, this is the greatest moment of our lives, really. Or really of our careers, that's what he meant. It's like this is a, this is, a, as Wendy was saying, and as Jerry was saying, sort of a, this is an inflection point. And not only is it the great, a great story, and you had in, in New York the, the restaurant story, yeah, New Yorkers really love their restaurants, but they sort of they took them for granted in a weird way. And when they started closing around their heads, not just in in a matter of months, literally in a matter of weeks, like literally, uh, you know, I've been around the restaurant world for a long time, and and people pay lip service to what it, you know it's it's a, a, a low margins, and you're you know the, in the best of times, these these uh, these businesses are operating on a knife's edge, and it actually turned out to be true. Like literally, when the city closed down. Within two days, Danny Meyer let go everybody in his restaurants. See you all later. I can't afford this. And so when that message, you know, that brings home the sort of enormity of the situation. And then what you have is the, that you have this sense of loss. And so once this pattern, I think, you know, we occupy different worlds, but the restaurant world really does, like I was saying, uh, to New Yorkers because they live in small spaces, because they have you know, neighborhoods are important to them. The, the, the restaurants and the food and the, the places that the old joints they go to uh, do provide a sense of identity and do provide a sense of, of, of communal spirit. And when that disappeared, uh, people felt it uh, greatly. I mean, right now it's just depressing to be, to be a restaurant critic. It's like, but I just wrote a review about eating an Indian meal with my mask on. Right at a very at a, at a nice Indian restaurant, but I'm wearing my mask. I don't care. Like who care? I don't care. So I just tried to. You kept it on. You kept it on. What I kept it on. I shoveled pieces of stuff, masala, and it got stained. And I was with my daughters, and they were laughing at me. And you know, it's like the whole thing is ridiculous. And then these poor, you know, this is 
this new restaurant, they got a lot of money invested in it. They're trying their best. Meanwhile, you guys go to these, nobody's wearing their masks in their restaurants. Like they're partying on. So it's just a weird twilight world. And so it's interesting to report on, but the actual state of the art of food is not great. And I guess what (laughs) New Yorkers love to, more than anything, we love to, Love to uh, complain a little bit and a little bit. We're highly critical, as we should be, all of us, but especially the the three of you uh, do for a living. Um, Wendy, of all the homes you've ever been to in New York City, we'll we'll switch to something positive. Which one was the most memorable? Well, there are two homes. One was when I first went to the Donald Judd uh, house. It changed my life. I can't tell you how it changed my life. I went there before it was renovated. The renovation is genius because you can't really tell it was renovated. So the Donald Judd house changed my life dramatically. Cannot put it into words. The Richard Richard Avedon, the photographer's house, was a revelation to me. The way he lived was the way I always thought I lived secretly, like almost ashamedly, because everything visually that interested him, he had in front of his eyes. His walls were bulletin boards. So he could literally pin up uh, a a, a New York Times piece, just rip it out of the paper, pin it on the wall as much as a billion dollar painting or photograph. And I thought, oh my God, that gives me license he was, it was on 75th Street above his studio, but I think it was between second and third, um, East 75th. He had his studio downstairs and then he would go up a very narrow flight of stairs through a little door in the side of the studio to his, his own loft apartment. It was the most exciting and uh, inspiring space I've ever been in. And Jerry, of all the exhibitions and experiences in the art world, which one stands out to you as the most shocking to this day when you look back and you go, wow, what a amazing place and time to be in? Well, I see about 25 to 30 art shows a week. I've coined a stupid expression and called criticism never sleeps. And again, like Wendy and Adam, to be the dodos, the last of our kind. I want to go out both in a blaze of glory and still be the last ones at least trying to cover the waterfront, which is really no longer possible, but there you have it. I had the extraordinary good luck of writing in one of the great periods in New York um, these decades. I remember going into the studio of a young artist named Kara Walker, African-American artist who had in the early 90s actually decided the history of painting was too freighted. And so she picked up a medium uh, that had been left in the dustbin of art history, a craft called silhouetting. And I looked at her work and she on these gigantic diopanoramas surrounding her studio, whole walls were a horrific, sexualized, violent, beyond belief retelling in black silhouettes, reducing the entire world to black and white, of the antebellum South slavery 
and then Jim Crow. It was so amazing and horrifying that while the back of my head seemed to catch on fire, I decided right then that I was seeing one of the futures of art and then to say not a word to her, that anything I said was of an older language. And so I just kind of shook my head, was horrified, and went back and started writing on her. And I've been writing on her ever since. Um, and do you, what year was that? Was that when she first did her silhouettes, which are now quite famous? That was the 1994. And one of my very first columns uh, was on her. And um, the rest is uh, Mac- MacArthur's and all the rest of highly deserved stuff. And Adam, uh, what would you say is the greatest meal you've ever had in New York? I remember my, when I first got this job, and I was quite weirdly blasé about this job. It's like, oh, restaurant critic, this is like, what do I, oh, come on, I don't know. And I had this uncle who uh, was an old-fashioned New Yorker, and he was one of these New Yorkers, well-traveled, wore tweed jackets, you know. But he was a very, he was a classically New York kind of guy, which meant he was very conversant in, uh, he loved restaurants. He'd grown up at the cultural restaurant. I remember my, my second or third restaurant uh, I reviewed was a place called Migas, which is a Galician word, I think, for sorceress or something. And again, I was blasé, Migas, what the hell, what am I doing here? This is crazy. And it was a, it was sort of nobody had re- reviewed it yet. The Times hadn't reviewed it. I was just looking, casting around for things to do. And my uncle Frank goes, you know, uh, Galician waiters are famous uh, uh, autocrats. They like to tell you what to do. And believe it or not, it, up comes this Galician waiter, and I go, well, you know, what should we order? That was like my trick in those days. What's good? He goes, you should get the uh, get the get the suckling pig. Get the pig. And I ordered the suckling pig, and I was like, holy Christ, that's good. Like holy Christ, like I've never had a pig like that. And, I, and the thing is, it was just like, oh my God, the food in the city. I mean, just this random place. Nobody was there. Hadn't been reviewed, and just this delicious. Uh, just succulent out of nowhere. We're having lunch on a weekday, right? It's like, where else, what other city could you do? Where does that happen? Where does this weird alchemy happen when you're transported literally to another world through the food? And me and Uncle Frank, it's just me and him. And so we had this sort of communal moment, like, holy crap, this is good. And holy crap, New York City. And holy crap. So I, then I wrote about it, and so I, I, I still remember that meal as sort of it's like an awakening to the dining culture of New York, and uh, you know, sort of the really the magic of it. it just a, a light bulb went off in my head. It's like, oh, maybe this will be an interesting job after all. You know, I'm real. I, I don't have to go anywhere. I could just waddle around town eating delicious food, and uh, you know, describing these these sort of cultural epiphanies I have now and then. Before we return to Jerry, Wendy, and Adam, a word from our sponsor, Fort Street Studio. Fort Street Studio's sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. The brand services a global clientele from its flagship showroom in Manhattan, where their team of specialists guide interior designers, architects, and collectors through the studio's offerings. The legendary outfit has an extensive catalog 
where each design can be customized endlessly. And they also carry stock carpets in standard sizes. As the offerings of Fort Street Studio are so expertly hand-knotted, photos rarely do these works of art justice. That's why an in-person consultation is so key. Only then can the subtleties of rug design and its many colors can truly come to life. To book your own consultation, visit fortstreetstudio.com. And when it comes to having these little epiphanies, sometimes you might have an opinion that other people don't share. So, and sometimes that lands writers, especially if you're a specialist in a particular field in hot water, because you have uh, an opinion that may not be uh, appreciated in quite the same way, especially if you're on the cutting edge and you're trying to do something new. Uh, Wendy, the, the design world is not as I would say, uh, controversial usually in the broader sphere. However, in our own little, you know, microcosm, people love to throw stones, whether or not they live in glass houses. Is there any story you can remember, uh, that got you in hot water because of your opinion? Well, I would say that I constantly get feedback, um, about the fact that is this design? Because I think people sort of less now, but I tend to show things that are very sort of, well, some people would say extreme because it isn't in the sort of language that most people know about published homes. You know, they're polite, they're empty, nobody makes a mess, nobody sits on a chair, nobody doesn't re-fluff the pillows if they get up once they get And, you know, I don't show that. Design for me is a byproduct of a person's passion, of a person's like need to live in a certain way, their desire to live in a certain way. So I'll often get the criticism, well, how can you publish that? That's not design. That's like a mess. Somebody's like, a, that's bordering on hoardering. <laughs> and I'll say, you know what? It, it, to you, that's your story about it. This is the way this person lives. And I am really strict. I vet a lot of material for the magazine that is not right for us because it doesn't tell a story and it isn't a good design story. But um, I think that, you know, design is so subjective. So of course, there's going to be a lot of like people screaming at me that, well, what do you mean by publishing that? But the, everything we publish has a very valid reason. And how much feedback do you get on a normal story? Do you know? Do you know when it, you, something? You know, I have stopped reading comments because I'm really sensitive, and it really upsets me <laughs> when people are mean. Um, so I get the feedback from my editors. They say, "Oh, Wendy, this did really well. The numbers are blah blah blah." I don't involve myself in that because. I have to do what I think is right and I have to keep, you know, searching for the best material for the magazine. And it's, it's very diff- it's hard to win. You know, it's a very competitive market and it's a really, really challenging situation. So I have to leave that stuff behind. And Jerry, I'm sure that there, what, which, which column of all of your columns has land you in the hottest of hot water? My second self, the one that lives in social media, online, is quite out there and gregarious. While my first self, I haven't had a meal with people other than Wendy and uh, Adam 
for years. I did once get invited to El Bulli, supposedly the greatest restaurant of the world in Barcelona, near Barcelona, had a 57-course meal, went home, and my wife and I ate a huge hamburger afterwards <laughs> because we were starving. Too much foam? Uh, it was, my mouth had been ravaged. I don't know what happened to me. It was art. I ate art, but not food. And I loved it. But um, so I get a lot of feedback. Uh, my last post had 800,000 interactions. And a lot of people rip me a new one. And my policy is, you could be right on the one hand. And on the other, you could never say anything worse to me about my work than I think occasionally. And then I think I'm a god. The, re the recent most controversial thing I wrote was just a couple of years ago when I stood in front of the Salvatore Mundi uh, that sold for, I don't know, $400 million or something to the guy, the sheik who killed somebody. I don't even know all that business. But I stood in front of it and I went, well, this is fake. And you understand, I never went to school. I have no degrees. I was a truck driver. I didn't start till my 40s. And so I only know based on 40 years of looking all day and all night and sleeping art. And I wrote this saying, well, of course, it's in a contemporary art auction because it's contemporary art. And I cannot tell you the insanity that ensued. Over the course of the next year, to make a too long story short, I would hear on background from curators and people who were part of the approval process going, you know, I think you're right. And I kept writing back, you big babies, you're like Republicans. You have to have courage and just say, I went along for the ride. I shouldn't have done that. Anyway, by now it's been downgraded, I think, to... Uh, thought to be touched by Leonardo or whatever it is. Like in the manner of... Yeah. And by the time we're all dead, um, it will be lowered to, you know, once thought to be in the school of Leonardo, which is fine. It's worth probably $1,000 by then. <laughs> and... And Adam, is there a, a review that you've you've written that ever landed you in hot water? Uh, you know... Let me just say that we wish we could all be Jerry, okay? We wish we could all court chaos. Of course. And controversy and madness with the genius and guile and sort of blind lunacy that he does literally every second of the day. You know, the role of the restaurant critic has changed in the, in the, in the time that I have been doing it, which is a long time. And the role, I think that the era of the restaurant critic as the kingmaker is long gone. The motto in journalism: you you basically you comfort the afflicted and you afflict the comfortable. So I would uh, take I would take you know shots at the fancy chefs like Mario Batali, and I take shots at uh, Keith McNally and you know the uh, great empresario, the brasserie empresario, and so that's what I would do. And uh, I yeah I, you know people sort of vaguely paid attention. I I I, I, I don't know. Uh, I did write a, 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 a Jerry mentions El Bulli. El Bulli was uh, probably the original uh, global destination restaurant. These restaurants, uh, they, they wouldn't, they started to function as global destinations. And so rich people would fly around to them. And 
uh, Adam Moss, who was the editor that we worked under the most, called me in and he said, listen, I just got invited to El Bulli by a champagne company. El Bulli was closing. So El Bulli was like, everybody was writing these uh, uh, odes to El Bulli and it, it became a caricature. It was a pastiche, like the last meal at El Bulli. So he goes, I want you to do a last meal at El Bulli and, you know, fly out, drink the champagne. Uh, it's a junket, write, a, write it a, as a junket. And like, it's a junket, it's hilarious. So I did, I wrote it as a junket. It was all a caricature of a junket. But my colleagues thought that I was just being on a junket and being an idiot. So I got, I, I didn't get it hot water, but I got ridicule. I guess I didn't write the piece the right way. I, I was trying to be funny, but they all took it seriously. So that was, that was vaguely, it was fun though. The role now of the critic for me is that you're more like, a, especially in the digital chaos, you're more like, you're not a kingmaker. You're really just uh, like a miner with a giant headlight, flashlight on your head, trying to search out stuff that people will find interesting and try to make sense of it in the midst of all this chaos. So anyway, that's sort of my role now. I would like to just add, I agree with Adam in my world. I, can know, I cannot make and I cannot break an artist. Anything I write has very little effect on the um, the king making, to use that phrase, uh, capacity. And that's fine with me. That's just fine. And you don't think as, as a, if, if you went to a show from a young artist and you wrote a glowing review that that wouldn't really kind of boost their career, maybe not a kingmaker necessarily, but that it wouldn't be, you know, that clip is going to go on that person's refrigerator for the next uh, two administrations, no? <laughs> um, yes, that artist will save it, but some people will believe it, some won't. Um, it will have an effect, but it's far, far less these days than it must have been once before. And I'm thrilled. I, the idea of a Clement Greenberg or a one major critic, that's bully. I'm, I don't want to be a bully. I just want to say what I like and I don't like and explain why. So, And is there, when it comes to the city, and I mentioned, you know, our sort of, our, our shared pastime of, of complaining, um, and kvetching. Um, is there an element to New York City today that you sort of loved to love to hate on? Whether it's new or it's or it's not new, what's your favorite thing to complain about? Very briefly, I want to ask. I love you, architecture critics, but we are always throwing Wendy, Adam, m many art critics throw themselves at huge powers, maybe hopelessly. But I want to ask architecture critics, what's up with Hudson Yards? You, there's a whole nother half being built. Shut the thing down. <laughs> I, I don't even care if you put the New York Jets there or make it a park or a decarbonization factory. The fuck? I mean, really, at least throw yourself at the money. And of course, you're going to fail the way Wendy fails or Adam fails. But you got to go down trying. End of my idiot comment. Wendy? Well, I could not agree more. I have always loathed Hudson Yards. I will say it outright. I didn't, I think it is so not about the spirit of this city. It might as well be a gated community, Hudson Yards, and, and making no sense. I mean, 
This city is about community and neighborhoods and the fantastic diversity of the city is what keeps it alive and cooking. And uh, it's just that Hudson Yards and anything that appears like it is anti-New York. Sadly, at the end. sadly, that's New York. It's all over the place. I mean, well, yeah, maybe it, maybe this is what New York is going to be. I mean, look at our neighborhood. Be. It's just filled with all these uh, tear, tearing down. We both we all live near each other in the in the village, and they're tearing down all these old buildings where I don't know, uh, you know, uh, Ulysses Grant wrote his memoirs. Yeah, yeah, you know, they're putting up they're putting up empty towers. They're empty. Nobody's in them. Yeah. Nobody's nobody's in them. So I say. I love, I, I love, uh, I found personally, I don't know about you guys, like the, the uh, COVID has increased my love for New York. Oh, yeah. You know, I always never felt, I never felt like a New Yorker. I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know. I'm just living here. I grew up. But now I really, you know, it, it, these, cri- these, it, these crises, which te- just come every 10, 5, 10 years, and this is the biggest one of all, it's really turned me into a New Yorker. Uh, but like, I, I think New Yorkers like to complain about their surroundings. Right, like this, just like I mean, come on, it's all falling down. It's like living in a, in the in in the, in the mouth of an, an ancient Victorian widow. Right, I mean, all these teeth are being fixed all the time, and I mean, get me out of here. But you know, at the same time, you know, with complaint comes love. Right, but I think really the surroundings. It's like God Almighty, you know, try driving a car around here. It's just ridiculous. And we do have a new mayor who just uh, was sworn in just about, a, you know, only a few days ago. What would, you know, everyone's talking about how the city is going to sort of adapt in this new era and what they need to do, you know, right away in order to fix things, to set things right. What kind of advice would you give to the mayor? Okay, I have one. I, I, I To interrupt you, and because I am so insane about this, I would say to our mayor, please make a law that anybody in their because traffic is the worst thing and and what is going on with traffic please make a law that arrests people puts them in jail for at least 10 years if they honk their horn at a car in front of them because that car is not mowing down a pedestrian who has the right of way to cross the street because I literally mean it. I would like to be mayor for a day just to enact that law. If you honk your horn, unless it's pain of death, you will be imprisoned for 10 years. That's it. All right. That's very specific. And I love that. that. That's a good law. Jerry? I would say keep the streeteries open. I cannot tell you how much I love walking up and down the streets of every all the streets and seeing human beings sitting, eating, even though we're idiots and eat in the freezing cold and wear masks and all of that. I adore that. So keep them. So the sort of sidewalk cafe of the, the sort of the outdoor seating that we've all had because of COVID. You want to keep those? Very much. Adam, what do you uh, think? Should uh, these restaurants yeah, keep yeah, these yeah, outdoor? I would second Jerry, I guess, you know, yeah. Keep the streeteries, at least for a while. Uh, forget about the honking uh, horn. That's not going to happen. Bloomberg. Oh, excuse Bloomberg me. Bloomberg tried no. that. Bloomberg, they all tried it. It's like, yeah, I just scream at them now. Shut up. I do. T- no, I do too, but it's really so obnoxious. They're bullies. I and they're know. S- I know. 
Uh, they're all from, they all come from elsewhere. I know. It's a, New York is a glorious mess. It's a glorious, noisy mess. And that ain't going to change. Because if it did, it wouldn't be New York anymore. So, you know, God bless the mayor. God bless all the New Yorkers. Uh, God bless the noisy mess. Amen. Amen. I love that the a city has gotten so noisy again. I drive every day because I'm from the Midwest and we are required to drive once a day. And even with the streeteries messing up the traffic, even with all these new people with like new boom boxes that are only the size of a wallet, blasting music and all the eccentrics walking up and down it's like going inside of Wendy's stories, but on the street and more. And God bless. And Wendy, what this- do you think? God bless. Well, no, God go ahead. bless. God bless the subway. I worship the subway. I live for taking that subway a hundred times to scout. I feel the subway is my communal family, New York living room. I sometimes I get so emotional on the subway. I want to hug people and or like just say. What's wrong? Can I help you? I mean, the subway is the most beautiful experience in New York City. For me, it is. Jerry, uh, if you had a a full day in in New York to yourself with absolutely zero plans and no responsibilities, what would you do with that day? I would understand that each day the creation of the world takes place anew. I would make certain that I was not cynical at any point in what I was about to do. And then I would do, I'm afraid, what I already do every day. I would go to 25 to 30 galleries, hang out in museums. I have no other life. I'm not part of society, as it were. But I couldn't be happier. And I would tell people, if you only had one thing to do, if you want a religious experience, go to the cloisters. And if you want to walk into the 50,000 years of art history, spend three days at the Met with no plans whatsoever and only look at what asks you to look at it and shut up inside and listen. Is there, a, is there a particular museum that you just love to hang out in, even if there's not a show up? Again, the Met is uh, unbeatable. I think it's the greatest encyclopedic museum in the world, better than the Louvre, because now everybody gets lost in the Louvre. The Met has a beautiful Beaux-Arts logic. Um, so I would just go to the Met, get lost. Like Wendy and Adam are saying, give yourself permission to get it wrong, to fail, to flail. There's This is subjective, people. You are the judge. You cannot prove that Vermeer is better than Norman Rockwell, I'm afraid. <laughs> but if you like Norman Rockwell better, see us after class. Okay. <laughs> Wendy, you have a free day. What are you going to do? Well, I would say I, I would go to Union Square. I would get on the subway. I would go up to the Met because that is my favorite museum in the city. And I would spend, I would visit all my favorite friends there. Then I would go to Sant Ambrose, stand at the counter, have an iced coffee, iced cappuccino, and a panini. And then I would go to the ballet because 
hopefully, I mean, in my, in the perfect world, I'm, I would go to Lincoln Center or I'd go to the Joys and I would see some incredible dance performance and I would be a happy camper. And are there any, Adam, is there a tired, worn out, uh, you know, city classic of any, of anything that you can think of that you would tell someone visiting like, uh, you still have to do it if someone came in. Uh, you know, for years, my favorite place to go in New York uh, was the Oyster Bar Grand Central Station, just because it's oysters are the original one. New York has frighteningly little terroir as far as food goes, because like I said, it, 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 all the trends come here and then they're popularized. But oysters were one of them, uh, beefsteaks another. So I would go to one of the old beefsteak houses, except for Peter Luger's, which I agree with my friend pete wells is crap i don't like that place but you know you want a steakhouse I, like you're talking about my uh my perfect day a lot it's, it would be a lot of old places you'd start with a diner breakfast somewhere go to one of the diners sit at the, sit at the counter watch that sort of weird ballet that takes place behind the counter uh, have your fresh squeezed orange juice have your eggs over easy however you like them then i would go for lunch you know, lunch is, uh, there are wonderful lunches, Midtown uh, Grand, uh, you know, uh, Fat Cat lunches are great. Uh, Katz's Deli, which has been open for billions of years, still serves the best hot dog in the country. It still is like walking into a living museum, right, which is the glory of the old restaurants in New York. So I'd go to Katz's again and again. The problem is if you go to Katz's, uh, you, you won't be able to eat for the next six weeks. So I'd go to Katz's maybe for a hot dog and just to smell that, you know, the steam rising from the broilers and to hear the patois, to look at the faded tiles and the pictures of the long dead fressers on the walls. You know, it's sort of like the Met, but it's different. It's alive, right? And I love the Met. My favorite place the Met, by the way, you go in, it's that little corridor on the north where they keep showing the photos that they have. They have all these photos and they, do you know what I'm talking about? It's on the way to, it's through the Moorish. And that there's just, there's just beautiful stuff there always. And it always changes, right? Anyway, uh, and then I probably, yeah, I have a dinner at some fancy place. But the fancy places are, uh, I don't know, where would I have it? Probably a fancy French place filled with one of the old, last old French restaurants. I don't know what it would be. Wendy would know. We'd, we'd have it, I'd have it with Wendy. We'd sit there, they'd smell the flowers. Wendy, what's your your favorite French restaurant in the city? Well, I'm going to tell you my favorite Italian restaurant because my favorite French restaurant in the city, sadly, which I will not name because it has been so troubled and um, I can't even talk about it. But my favorite Italian restaurant is Il Posto Accanto. And I will say that Beatrice Tosi and her husband, Julio, during the worst days of the pandemic, I would go with some friends and eat outside and it saved my life. I mean, Beatrice has, not only is she the most, I call her goddess, but she, she created, when she couldn't have, when she couldn't serve food, she was delivering food to friends and people who were sick and who needed it with Julio. And to this day, you know, my perfect day is a Saturday or Sunday where I don't have to do anything and I can meet friends and eat outside. And, uh, it's like going to a little private club. You see the same people. It's just, it's family, it's friendship, it's warmth, it's love, it's everything 
good. Yeah, can I just say one thing? Then Jerry can say, I know Jerry, he wants to say something, but this is a, the, 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 the curse of being a restaurant critic in New York is that you don't <laughs> have a regular normal place where you go where people know your name, quote unquote. And that is really the ultimate joy of dining in New York. Right. I haven't heard of this Italian restaurant she's talking about. I've never been oh there. My God, it, oh, Jer- oh, I- I'm going to oh, take you. Okay. I'm going to take you. We're all going to go. Because the three of us will go. We're all going to go. The three of us Dan, are going to go Dan to can come. Posto. Dan can come. And, Dan can and come. Dan, no, the four of us are going to go because you have to know Beatrice. She is do. goddess of the earth. I do. See, that's the joy. That- Wendy, Wendy, is this the same place that Richard, our, our, yes, late, our uh, dear, dear boss Richard, my, yes. One was, of my be- most beloved friends, Richard David Story. Who, lo- who, we- who left us last year. Um, he is the king of Il Posto Canto and brought all his friends there and introduced them. And it was the most loving thing. And it still goes on. The love still goes on. All right, on. we're going. Thanks we're going. Richard. Book we're a table. Going. Four going. people. We're going. That's okay, it. Okay, we're going. That's it. We're done. That's it. Done. Jerry could tweet. Talk. Jerry could talk now. Talk. I would like to speak up for the secret ashamed or proud introverts. I have not gone out to eat at any of these sorts of places in the last three or four decades. I'm a very happy person. And um, I think that I don't know why I'm saying this right now, but I think that I, I too love New York, even though I only eat, um, food that's already made in Korean delis and that I put them in my refrigerator and I ice their coffee. And um, there are a lot of ways to get by. I really sound like yeah, a loser. No, you don't. Yeah, yeah, you you yeah. are unique. No, you sound like a loser. You're coming to this restaurant, Jerry. You're coming. Yeah, you you are coming. Absolutely. I've actually died in restaurants with Jerry, just one. And he really... he. He looks around, he looks around like he's never, like literally he's just landed from Mars. And then he orders, you, you order, I think he ordered a hamburger and then he bites into it. He goes, it's like, oh my God, I've never tasted anything like this. This is the best thing I ever tasted. And then he forgets to taste immediately and then he starts looking around. It really is quite an, ex- it, it's, it's, he's really got this tabula rasa, which is really a great thing for a New Yorker. Every experience with Jerry is new and beautiful every day of the week, every hour, every day. But we're still, we're taking you there, Jerry. Wendy, your book at the table. Dan, you're coming. Dan, you're coming. All right. And and in terms of the things that are new, as my la- one of my last questions, what would you, if someone visited New York and they're like, they hadn't been here in three or four years, and you said like, you got, you can't miss this one thing, right? Um Wendy, what would you tell people? So I would tell people what I do is uh, visit the High Line in the rain or in really bad weather because you you want to be alone on the High Line if you can. I mean, as alone as you can be. It, the High Line is still, to me, miraculous. It is so beautiful. It's constantly changing because it's a garden, an urban garden. I think it's one of the most successful and beautiful um installations, if you'll call it that, in New York City. So I would say go to the High Line, but go in bad weather. Go in bad weather. That's a good idea. Jerry, well, someone hadn't visited in five years and they're like, oh, I'm finally making it back to New York. What do I got to see? Well, the Museum of Modern Art is new again. 
after failing its 2004 renovation with a billion dollars, miserably forgetting to build enough space for the most vaunted collection of modern art on earth. They forgot somehow to build enough space. More on that later. And it is rebuilt, and you are now finally seeing at least the tip of this iceberg. Annoying or not, in their incredibly uptight, sphincter-closed formalism, go to MoMA. You can't lose. Adam, what would you say is the the one place that someone should hit they hadn't been in a few years? Well, my places, they all tend to be ancient, so I don't know, like the new places, uh, you know, I don't know. uh, But the old, like, there are a couple of restaurants that I like to go to just to sort of catch up, heartbeat of the city. Uh, One is uh, New York Noodle Town, which is a tiny little square of a restaurant uh, down in in Chinatown, uh, open late at night. Uh, for like six bucks, you could get uh, this fabulous bowl of uh, wonton, shrimp wonton and noodles. Uh, they have fabulous chopped meat. Um, I visited during the pandemic and stood out. There's a big line outside with people like dressed in hazmat suits just so they could get their fix of this delicious, uh, you know, sort of potion. And if you go during normal times, you'll see the, the, the characters of the city pass through. You know, you see cops coming in. You'll see people, uh, jurors coming in from the courts, and you'll see the local population come in and move. And it's one of these uh, efficient, it's a Katz's Deli kind of place, very efficient, very old-fashioned, and very reliably delicious. And you'll feel like that you're in the center of some constantly changing world in a place that doesn't change, right? So that, I love going there. There are a bunch of others, but you know, go, yeah, go down there. It's, a, it's the cheapest, it's the quickest, it's the easiest fix, uh, you know, you, the, the way to feel like you're, you're, you're in a big, 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 uh, moving, delicious city. Which is a nice microcosm for, uh, you know, for New York itself, I would say. Well, and Chinatown's never changed. Chinatown's the least, uh, has never, hasn't changed ever, in, years, in years, literally in years. I think that that is a lovely place to, to end it on, unless anyone has anything they would like to add or they would like to discuss. I want to do this every morning with you, Dan, and Wendy, and Adam, and we could stop writing and just every morning do this. Wouldn't it be great? I would love it more than life. It's so inspiring to listen to my colleagues. And Dan, I have to just do a shout out to Dan. Dan is one of the greatest talents people. Dan has inspired me since the day I met him. He actually inspired me before I met him. And then I made a lunch date with him. And then thank, thank you, Dan. Thank you. That's definitely not that's definitely not getting edited out. Thank you to Wendy, Jerry, and Adam for their time and endless patience. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.